You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And we are back. Tracy, the trick with our guest this week is to catch him early in the day so that he hasn't opened a bottle of wine yet. Uh, well, I mean, you could probably say that for a lot of our guests, but fortunately, since I do the schedules, I still know who you're talking about. And I, okay, so I, I'm wondering if our guests' ears have been burning because the cosmos has, has, at least in my neck of the woods here in the Chicagoland area, has had a lot to say about him recently because my students, my speculative fiction class, were turning in papers a couple weeks ago that I've spent the entirety of my spring break grading as is only just in the world of teaching. Everybody else goes on break and then you have a date with your kitchen table and a pile of stuff. And I have been I have been reading a lot of students that given a choice of 12 different SF short stories and novellas to write their paper about just felt in their bones they needed to write about Maurice Broaddus's work. So <laughs> your your ears should be burning because everybody has an opinion. And they they were all over it. And I was very impressed with some of their work. Mo, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. Tired, but I'm good. I'm good. I know, well, in the green room, prior to this starting, the, the sort of virtual green room, you confessed that, you know, in, in addition to having like a deadline coming up this week, you might have sort of been procrastinating writing how many short stories, you lunatic? Four so far this month. <laughs> oh, I'm saying so far because I, right, right. Think, I think I got one more story left in me. Yeah, I mean, there's like five <laughs> days left. Right. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> And it's not like I don't have 40,000 words left to write in this novel or anything, so. Mm-mm. No, not not in the least. Good Lord. I'm tired just thinking about it. So we're with Maurice Broaddus, and you're here specifically because the date this, this episode's supposed to drop is going to be the on-sale date for Sweep of Stars, which is the beginning of your space opera series with Tor. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm living my best geek life right now. No doubt. So... All right, I've been I've been kind of following the buzz on Sweep of Stars for a while here, and one of the things about it that I that I like best, all confession, I haven't read an arc, I don't have like a I don't I don't have an inside track on it just yet. But one of the things I like about it best is that every review I have read wants to sort of talk about it wants to sort of theorize about where your head was at when you were writing this. And I, and I think that the, the reviews are really interesting because they all kind of want to position this text in some, you know how it is. They want to position a text relative to other things that have been written. It's like this with a little bit of that, or if you liked X, you would like Y. And I love it when reviewers sort of fall on their face trying to do that. And they don't have the words because (laughs) they have to face the fact that they're reading something that has its own bone structure and has its own sort of nervous system here. So that's, that's me being really vague here, but you talk for a minute to us about like sweep of stars. Where are we going? What is the story here? So what are the story? So the story <laughs> is a convoluted one. Uh, as you'll come to realize it's much of my life, you know, as I go about doing things. And so originally I, I pitched the idea of, you know, sort of like, you know, my sister and her friends uh, from, from the neighborhood, you know, what if they had guns and were like, you know, patrolling the universe. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's a whole story right there. And so I I kind of pitched that and they were like, and and Tori was like, hmm, I think we want to buy that. And so uh, 
as I was fleshing out the world and everything, like, well, what sort of world would, would they come from? So I started doing all this fleshing out of the world. And then uh, I realized that, you know, I spent, so much, I spent almost a year imagining the world that they came from. And so there was this fully vibrant world that's basically utopian, this utopian black community, mm-hmm. a Pan-African black community, <laughs> right, that they came from. And I'm like, oh, man, if I just do the story focused on them, I'm really going to eat it, you know, with some of my fans because they're going to, I already know, they're going to want to see parts of this world. Mm-hmm. So uh, so then I just like, all right, we're just going to dive all in and it's going to be, we're going to completely have, we're going to have like three storylines and we're just going to follow all aspects of, of this world so we can really get a good insight into this world. And and so what it basically started off with is, you know, I do a lot of community work here in uh, Indianapolis and uh, I just sort of like ask the people I work alongside, it's like, hey, what are we working towards? Like, what's the future we would like to see? Um, and so it kind of became this game of like, well, man, like if we had a blank page, yeah, what would we yeah. do with it? Uh, if we could redo our economic system, what could it look like? If we could redo our education system, what would it look like? What are the things that we value most and we'd like to see society, you know, sort of revolve around? What, what should the, the, the cultural priorities be? And so then it was just like me and my neighbors were sort of dreaming about, you know, what about a world that could be. Yeah. Right. And so, and so that's why I'm, that, that became the, the foundations for the uh, Muangano uh, Alliance. Man, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, even though I'm the guy who wrote the thing. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but uh, so that became the, that became the base of, of that world. And so then I was just like, wow, this is a this is a really great great sort of space. I I, I would love to inhabit this world. And, yeah. and you know, my neighbors are like, yeah, this is. It basically does the, effort, the job of Afrofuturism. Like we, we end up painting this collective vision of what we'd like to see, and then now it's like, oh man, can we, can we get a slice of that now? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so then we, so then it's like, uh, it sort of it becomes this sort of food feedback loop into our work, and so then it's like, oh, so this now we know what we're working towards. So yeah, so that's a, a long way of going. Yeah, I just really like this world. <laughs> Can't that's wait for so people cool. to explore it. We talk a lot about, and actually Patrick and I have been talking a lot about our own writing because he is uh, coming to us from his one-man writing retreat right now mm. in, in the, the the Rocky Mountains, and uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm in I'm literally in a cabin. All the cabins here have themes, mm-hmm. and people who know me know that I like westerns, and I am in the cowboy cabin. There you go. They knew you were coming. They knew you were coming. He's, he's at this point, he's writing poetry to soothe the bears. And so, but you know, we, we've been talking a lot about our writing, our writing process and stuff lately, where we are in our, our respective visions for ourselves as writers. And because of that, you end up talking about stuff like workshopping. But I think when we think about workshopping, we tend to have this really limited view of it where it's like, I have written a draft of a thing. I want to show it to you and you need to tell me what you think. And, and, and I will, take that in and work with that feedback. But you're really thinking about workshopping here at a much more basic level of like, this is, this is almost like community organizing of the future of the fiction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we talk, talk about uh, creating our desired future states is a, is a motto among our, our our community. And so uh, they're like, what would it look like if we just took that? Like, you know, literally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like really kind of followed through on it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, 
pardon me for a moment if you hear some tippity typing in the background here, but I got to Google something that I want to make sure I get the name of it right because I need to ask you if you've heard about it and I don't want to be fumbling around so, here. So, for, so yeah. while you're doing that, yeah. as, as the listeners know, we do have video that we can see. And as I'm, I'm sitting here staring at a giant blue horseshoe on the wall, <laughs> it's, it occurs to me that it's been a long time since Maurice and I have talked. And I just wanted to thank... Indianapolis for kicking Peyton Manning loose to come to Denver and win some Super Bowls. I I just thought that that was really, really kind of the Colts to do that. So I am in my son's room. That's the best uh, Wi-Fi connection. So let me clarify that. Uh, If you were in my office, you would probably be looking, staring down the entire cast of like, you know, Black Panther and Funko dolls. Wakanda forever. The sound of a man trying to rise above the the trolling here. Right. (laughs) But uh, you will probably see Peyton Manning both in a Colts uniform and in a Broncos uniform somewhere in this room because, uh, yeah, that's my, my oldest son. (laughs) It's <laughs> now in college, which is a big change from when we last oh. talked, Patrick. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> right. How, how dare he grow up? Right. I mean, seriously, I there's there's tons of kids that I know throughout the community, and they're all growing up, and I'm, it's just offensive to me. Why can't they just stay kids? Every time they grow up, I feel old. Right. Now, part right. of the problem is we keep feeding them. It's really sort of, part of the root of the issue. But also, there are so many rules involving the feeding. I mean, just right. you can't just sort of nope out of it. People have opinions. Right, um, right. Yeah. Well, as I informed my son, this is actually not his room. This is our house's guest bedroom that happens to be decorated like his room uh, <laughs> because he is away at college. So mm-hmm. he does not have a room here. Gotcha. But it's important that I maintain these, these uh, parental boundaries. Right. Yeah. 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 So, well, and I mean, it's it's a cool guest room. I like the hot tub. Right. <laughs> hot tub, its own personal Mental balcony. Must be a trick, but you right. know, that's, yeah, you can work on so, that. So, Tracy, did I give you enough time to type what you were yeah, typing? Yeah, I found the thing. I found okay. the thing. Yeah. So, I was wondering if you have heard about the the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art in November uh, opened up, okay, a little background here for listeners, for everybody, the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art has for a while developed what it calls period rooms, which are kind of imaginative spaces because what they do is they take- Hold on, is there two spaces for every period room? No idea. Probably just one because everybody's trying to get get on the same editorial page here, but I don't know, man. I don't know what what style they're following here. Why are you this way, Patrick? yeah, it's because he, he literally had the symbol crash queued up right. and he can't get away of a man of his needs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the period rooms, they like take pieces of art and if they're like, here's a Baroque period room. And so, they'll you know, they'll get like a settee that is, you know, from that period and this and that. And it is on the one hand supposed to give us a sense of historical accuracy. But on the other hand, it's a bit of a fiction anyway, because none of these objects were ever in the same room at the same time anyway. They're just being arranged like a high-end Ikea vibe, right? <laughs> So I guess in November, they opened up their first Afrofuturist period room. Oh, nice. And so it is, it's specifically a unity of objects from local artists and some archival objects um, and, and all, sorts of, uh, all sorts of things where it's, it's the first period room that is set in the future. 
And it is really interesting. You can actually Google a full video tour of it that that the curators have put together that kind of walk you through who were the contributors to it and what's the vision of it. And it's a really fascinating space. And I kind of I couldn't help but think of that when you were when you were talking about the brainstorming process for the world of Sweep of Stars. Right. Right. And and that's part of the fun of it is like because like originally so. Uh, you know, obviously it's a sci-fi book, and so I'm, I'm like putting together this world and everything, and I'm like, ooh, I'm imagining all this. You know, I, look here, I'm useless when it comes to technology. I am lucky I got this microphone plugged into my laptop, right? Uh, <laughs> and so but I'm trying to imagine like technology. And my original timeline was, oh yeah, this could be great for a thousand years from now, and what could things look like? And, da, 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 da. and then I realized, yeah, I don't think technology works the way I think it does. And uh, mm. everything I'm imagining for a thousand years from now is probably closer to like a hundred years from now. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me go ahead and compress that timeline. And then since I don't know much about technology, how can I cover my behind as I build this? Oh, magic. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's also magic in here too to cover up my blind spots. So anything <laughs> does make sense in my world. I'm like, ha ha, magic. magic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love science fantasy. And I think that um, actually, the, the the course that I teach, we're about to move into a science fantasy unit. And I always feel like when I introduce science fantasy that my students are sort of like ready to flip a table. They're like, God damn it. You just got done talking to us about how there are meaningful distinctions between science fiction and fantasy. And now you're like, guess what, kids? Right. And you're like, <laughs> you know, it's like when I do the prose poetry unit in creative writing and they're like, now you're just fucking with us. Right. Right. You know, it's it's got that kind of vibe to it. But I think the reason for me why I love science fantasy is I feel like it is the shucking off of largely artificial distinctions that we've drawn as artists that I think are primarily driven by where do we shelve this and how do we advertise this to make mm-hmm. the money happen. Right. Because I don't know if you if you if you roll back into the 1970s and the 1980s and like late new wave stuff and if we start sort of looking at where some of that vibe first was was getting established. I don't know that anybody was worried about that, the way that we find ourselves anxious about it today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I almost make it my personal mission to frustrate labels like that. <laughs> so but if, I, as you were talking about that, I, was, I thought back to my first novel, uh, Kingmaker, mm-hmm. my, my Knights of Breton Court series. And, yeah. you know, it was pitched as, uh, you know, the, the Wire meets Excalibur. You know, it was this King Arthur tale set in modern day Indianapolis, blah, 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 blah. But I'm just like, yeah, I'm writing a crime novel. It just happens to have elves in it. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so good luck shoving that. And then good luck coming to my piece. Because if you're, you're thinking, oh, I get to see this, 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 like, yeah, crime novel. And since I'm a horror writer, zombies. Because why not? And uh, that is very much the the sort of vibe I have with a sweep of stars also. So, you know, whatever your preconceptions are, it's like, just uh, kind of put those on the back burner and just sort of enjoy what it is I'm, I'm trying to do here. So, uh, cause I'm having fun writing it. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm just here to take you on a ride. Well, and especially like you've done a ton of editorial work over the years for Apex and mm-hmm. not just for Apex for other, for other places as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that that has to have sort of attuned your sensibilities to for sort of like how when you're kind of combining the writer reader brain in the way that you have to as an editor, like how do you approach a story and feel like, yeah, the way that we're kludging these things together, mm-hmm. like especially when it's someone else's story, right. the way we're pulling these things together, that really works. But like this one, not quite. We got to we got to change the lenses a little bit or approach differently. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I had started doing 
actually starting a couple novels ago is uh, I realized I was kind of driving myself insane with that, you know, trying to anticipate, you know, the market and the audience and what their reactions are going to be, probably overthinking it due to my uh, King Arthur in the Hood <laughs> novel right. uh, and, and, and all of that. And so I was probably overthinking things. And I was like, you know what? It's okay that this book isn't for everybody. Mm-hmm. That is okay. And so like, uh, like with uh, Pit My Airship, which is my, my novel just before this one, mm-hmm. um, you know, that had an intended audience of one person. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to see if I could make my friend JJ laugh. And that was my entire target audience. And, uh, you know, um, don't get me wrong, 350 pages is a lot of work to make one dude laugh. But I'm committed. I am committed. I hope no, you get yeah, that. I am committed go all to this. In. Right. Yeah. I'm all in. Just like with Sweeping Stars, you know, my intended audience was uh, the folks, the, the neighbors I work with is a, a group called the, the Kepler Institute. It's like, hey, hey, mm-hmm. can, I, can I put a vision to what it is that we say we do? Mm-hmm. and amuse you along the way. And, uh, and so they're my target audience, which also frees me up because so like when the reviews come in and if they miss the mark or if they are busy you know, deconstructing something way over there in left field, I'm just like, oh, that's fine. That's fine. Because yeah. I, I, I know who my intended audience was and if, you know, this book might have not have been for you. And th- you know what? That's okay. Well, no, baby, the, all of that kind of comes down to the really important idea that in the end, you have to write something that you know you will be happy with. And, and you know, it, it could be sometimes that audience of one just begins with yourself, too. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that can be a way to start the process of, of not overthinking what you want to create. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things I, the other thing that really freed me up is the whole idea of like, you know, who am I writing for? You know, am I writing for the fantasy market? Am I writing for the sci-fi market? Am I writing for the horror market? You know, who am I writing for? And you know, the answer is actually, I'm writing for me. You know, so as long as, <laughs> as long as I'm doing what I'm, as long as I'm accomplishing what I'm setting out to do, yeah. And as long as it lands for me, I've done my job. Um, because if nothing else, I can't help how audiences react to what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, even even if it's my friends or or, or my intended audiences, you know. I, I, there's only so much I can control there, which is like nothing that I think about it. But right, yeah. It, but am I writing from? I am writing for me, and as long as I'm writing for me, and I'm my first and foremost primary audience, then it's like, all right, did I accomplish what I set to set out to do? Yes. All right, mm-hmm. then I'm good. Yeah, yeah. And I think that again, this kind of goes back to the whole thing with like science fantasy and what, what what words do we put on the the spine of the book and what shelf do we put it in and how do we tag it so that it shows up on the right search engine, you know, parameters and whatnot. But I'm thinking also about the way that authors who are really established, like you, who have had a number of different works published in different places, that you've, you've done novels, you've done novellas, you've written so many short stories, that people, when they think of what Mo Broadus creates, they have a vision for that. And that on the one hand, that's great, because we all want to build an audience. And we, we all want to have a sense that there are people who trust us with their time as readers and with their imagination and all of that. That's, that's super. At the same time, like, we don't want to get hemmed in by our own looming sense of what our brand is. Mm-hmm. Like the brand is a benefit, but the brand is sort of a curse too at the same time. And right. it, I, I love that you are not, not too worried about it, letting that roll off your back a bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, the, 
main person that's going to annoy is probably my agent. It's okay. I know Bridget. She's, she's very, she's very tolerant. (laughs) She's very tolerant. So when I roll up with everything from, well, here's what my next novel is, but by the way, in the, I I know I have another book to write in the Astro Black trilogy, but Hey, what do you think about this? British cozy mysteries. Uh, You know, so I'll do stuff like that. And she just takes it all in stride and is like, okay, Maurice, we'll figure it out. (laughs) Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, she's, I mean, you, you, you've been with her just long enough now to know that if you say British cozy mysteries, she would be like, I, Cannot say no, but <laughs> right. but also okay. <laughs> right, yes, that was actually the brilliant impersonation because that's almost verbatim what happened. Right, yeah, yeah, because it's that's so deeply in her wheelhouse that you've really you you just shivved her right there. There's just mm-hmm. nothing. She's like, damn it, he knows, he knows a cozy mystery. I want to I, I want to point out a, a, another takeaway from from what Maurice was just talking about is something that I've heard from a lot of other people before writing to market doesn't work out very well for most people. Mm-hmm. It's always better just to write what you want to write and worry about the market after. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Cause I mean, if nothing else, part of it's a, just the production of publication, right? So if I'm taking an observation of the market right now, well, if I'm going the traditional publishing route, well, that's great as a snapshot for now, but it's going to be, two, possibly three years before that book comes to market by the time I'm done writing it and editing it and sold it and all that yeah. kind of stuff, you know, and the market, you know, as we can see, you know, shifts. So what might be perfectly on target now could miss the mark by the time it comes out. So I'm, I'm right. all about, here's where my head is at. Here's where my heart is at. Here's what's, uh, here's what I'm passionate about in the moment. And then that's mm-hmm. the stuff I want to write about. Exactly. And we all know that right now the market is really, really hot on uh, zombie butterflies. But if you waste all your time writing zombie butterflies right now, you're just not going to be able to sell that story. <laughs> but I can get away with writing a zombie butterfly short story and get that out pretty quick. So I can still yeah, capitalize yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah. Don't give up on your dreams. Just maybe, right. you know, think about the packaging. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to, I want to flip the script here a little bit because we've, I mean, the market conversation, I guess is sort of part of this, but I'm also really interested in how you've, you've dived in with both feet with middle grade books. You've got one that has been out in the world for about two years now. And one that is coming out very soon, April, right? Uh, It's it's got, just got moved thanks to paper shortages and supply chain issues. Uh, But it's not, but it's still May 19th is when it's coming out. So yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So still soon. Mm-hmm. So what I think the most simplistic way of trying to answer the question of like, hmm, you know, Maurice Broaddus is writing for adults in the world of science fiction and fantasy, but he's writing for he's writing for middle grade over here. I think the most simplistic question to ask is like, why not do YA? Like, it seems like there would be more overlap in the skill set that you've developed writing for adults. But I, I work no, with a lot of yeah, friends Tracy, who, are, Tracy, who are MG Tracy, writers. Yeah. Tracy, I will not sit here. And mm-hmm. listen to your common sense. <laughs> I'm not here for that right now. <laughs> Do not so, make me endure this. Right. <laughs> uh, no, the, the short answer actually. So again, an unintended thing. Because mm-hmm. um, again, I'm writing for these sort of uh, I don't know niche audiences. We'll, we'll say, but like originally when I set out to write this middle grade, it was for a couple reasons. One. Um, I wanted to chronicle the, some of the antics of my sons, my then middle grade uh, boys. I wanted to chronicle some of their antics because um, Lord knows they 
they had antics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just had... turned off video for bandwidth reasons a moment ago, but I'm making the face. Yo! So. <laughs> Man, you mine. I have a teenage oh. son, so yeah. Well, and I have two, and my youngest, I mean, I'm pretty sure he had an entire R&D department just to come up with new things. <laughs> So, so like them in middle school, I was just like this. I have to chronicle this, and plus give them something to read. Mm-hmm. Um, in my attempt to get them to be readers, but I mean, my kids had to rebel against something, and so they rebelled against reading, I guess. Um, <laughs> so they never quite became the readers I imagined them to be. But my oldest did. Uh, re- he does claim to be the my original editor for the Usual Suspects. All right. Uh, so there's that. But then there's also the uh, because I eventually became a middle school teacher. Mm-hmm. Again, because of the antics of my youngest son, uh, he had pulled <laughs> some shenanigans so high level. Because uh, at the time, I was like a substitute teacher at the school because I was like shadowing my boys through school. Because again, I know what I've raised, and mm, I need yeah. to be a buffer. No, it's very kind of you to put yourself in the way of that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but by the end of <laughs> by the end of the fallout of his shenanigans, <laughs> or as I like to say. At the at the at the conclusion of the police investigation, <laughs> which, by the way, as it turns out, my son was completely innocent. As I had I had faith in him that, mm-hmm. despite his shenanigan and his ways, he was actually innocent of what they, they were accusing him of. But uh, but by the end of it, the principal calls me into her office, and I'm like, "Up, oh, this is it. They don't want me back at the school ever again." And mm-hmm. uh, and she was just like, "Hey, the the way you handled that situation." Uh, taking the kids through it and all the parents and, and us as an administration, not to mention your own family, uh, can you just work here full time? And I'm just like, oh, sure. <laughs> not um, what you're expecting. Not what I was expecting. And then, but then here's the flip side of that is, you know, I have students who are finding out that I'm a writer and they're like, hey, Mr. Broaddus, can we read something of yours? And I'm looking at my bibliography and I'm like, well, let's see Kingmaker and all the zombies. And, oh, that book I wrote with Rath James White, that's a, probably a hard no. So <laughs> let me come up with something else for you guys that you can read. And uh, that's my uh, adventures of, as a middle grade author began. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's, it's just been a, a wild ride. So, yeah, The Usual Suspects is basically, uh, uh, you know, when something goes wrong in the school, they round up the, the usual suspects, as it were, which is... <laughs> quite coincidentally, the class I was spent the most time in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and these young black boys uh, decide that rather than uh, just sat around, sit around being accused of uh, everything that goes wrong, they were going to become the, their own detectives and figure out what went wrong in the school. So that's usual suspects. And, uh, and then it did, it did really well. I mean, I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I might be a motor grade author. All right. And uh, I'd, I'd run a creative writing club in the school, and I, I, I mentor a lot of uh, students on the side. And so one of the one of my former middle school students had come back to visit me in the classroom and she happened to be sitting next to me when my editor reached out and was just like, Hey, we, we, we need another book from you. Um, and she's like, Oh, Mr. Broadus, this is, that's, that's gotta be hard to come up with ideas. And I'm like, hard. No ideas are the easy part. Yeah. So I like pitched her as a book. And then I looked around the classroom. And I just said, Hey, pick some people. And she picked some students in the room. And I just pitched each of them as, as potential characters for, for books and everything. And then they came back and like this Bella person, she mm-hmm. sounds great. Why'd you do that? And I'm like, oh, she's still sitting right here next to me. And oh. uh, so, yeah, she's looking at my shoulders like, Mr. Broadus, I would be great as a book. And I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> um, and so we have Unfadeable, which uh, yeah. stars a, a young uh, Bella Fades. Uh, she is a, a middle school student on summer vacation. 
and uh, she is trying to get an arts program uh, up and going in her neighborhood just to get rid because she's a, a, a tagger in the neighborhood. She loves to mm-hmm. spray paint buildings and everything, and she's just trying to get a, a, an arts project so she can, uh, you know, have something constructive to do with her time. And in the course of her trying to do this, she recover, uh, she uncovers a whole series of, like, neighborhood corruption when it comes to how money is doled out in communities. And, oh, wow. Uh, and she has to solve the solve this puzzle on her own, but well, not really on her own because she falls under the uh, mentorship of a character who I, I affectionately call my, my retired Batman character. He's a, a retired private investigator, and he doesn't solve the problem for her, but he helps train her to to, to give her the tools to for her to solve it on her own. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the book is all about agency uh, of, of young people, how, you know, you always have agency no matter what the situation is, no matter how complex the problem seems to be. And, and we get into some really nitty gritty complex politics in the book that it, that doesn't matter because mm-hmm. it's all about how do you solve the obstacles that are in your way? Um, yeah. No matter how young you are, you have the tools, you have the, the wits. How do you creatively solve the problem? Now, don't get me wrong. Middle schoolers have unique ways of solving problems that I will politely call messy. <laughs> they do. In fact, that is the number one reason why I teach at the high school level and not the middle school level is, is exactly what you're, you're right. gently referring to. I, but that's probably the reason why I love working with middle schoolers. I'm like, right, oh, yeah. this is so messy. I love it. No, you're, you're about the mess. You're all I, about I, the mess. I, man, that sounds like my last review with my principal. You <laughs> <laughs> just about the mess. And she, what did the other thing she said? She, said uh, she goes, Maurice, even if you don't say a word, the kids pick up on the fact that they have mm, a co-conspirator in you. <laughs> and I'm like, I know you might mean that as a, as a, as a criticism, but oh, I think I'll wear that badge. I will wear that yeah, badge. No, I, I think, I, I think that's a compliment. I think mm-hmm. that was a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things you've always been fantastic at is, is gathering in people and making them feel included and, and sharing, sharing the love. And so I'm feeling like this is a good picks of the week moment here. Are we at that? Yes. Yeah. All right. Picks of the week. All right. So uh, let's get started. Patrick, what's your pick of the week? My pick is uh, I'm going with a, audio book that I picked up. It's the best science fiction of the year, volume six from Neil Clark. Cool. And this features stories from 2020, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, includes things from, uh, Aliette de Bedard. I'm not pronouncing her name right at all. And I've met her and I'm still not pronouncing the name right. I'm sure. Uh, Toby Buckel, James S. A. Corey, uh, SB Divya, who we had on, podcast yeah, not too long ago, ago. Yeah. Ken Liu, uh, Carrie Vaughn, and a bunch of other people. So uh, they've got multiple narrators doing the stories, which is kind of cool. Oh, that is uh, cool. You can also pick it up as a, you know, as a paperback or a, a, a Kindle book, if you want, digital ebook. Uh, but I, I picked up the, the audiobook and have just kind of been going through it and uh, enjoying it. So best science fiction of the year, volume six, edited by Neil Clark. Fantastic. Maurice, how about you? Yeah, I'm kind of torn. Um, yeah, I probably shouldn't do books I'm supposed to be blurbing uh, <laughs> since you guys can't see that yet. But other people have. Say, it's yeah, fine. Other people, yeah. I mean, yeah, they say they say there's a book that you can't get right now, but it's coming out in XYZ. Oh, okay. 
All right. Yeah. Well, in that case, the, the Lies of a Jungo by uh, Moses Utomi is coming out through uh, Tor.com. Um, it's a fantastic little novella. Um, that's one thing. But other thing is uh, I, I'll, I'll do a hip hop uh, um, album I've been listening to a lot lately called uh, Sometimes I Might Be Introvert by uh, Little Sims, who hmm. uh, uh, I'm loving this album. It uh, I think came out last year. But uh, yeah, I'm just loving this uh, album. Very cool. That's awesome. My son, who is 14, going on 15 in May, over the course of the pandemic, one of his big things that he turned towards was music. And Mm. suddenly having the family Spotify account became crucial for him. And like at the year end roundup, we found out that he had listened to 27,000 hours of music (laughs) last year. So, whoa. Yeah. And uh, and he's gotten very, very into hip hop in a way that is like his vocabulary of it is far beyond like mine. Mine stalled out like past about 2005. Right. So like my, my awareness of artists sort of like capped out there. And so now he's sort of like adopted me like this like middle aged <laughs> pet. Like, OK, we know it's going to fix you. Here's some Kendrick Lamar. And here's some like we're going we're going to work on you, mom. I'm like, right, okay. right. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I will say this. Uh, <laughs> hip hop. Hip hop, funk, and jazz pretty much form the backbone of Sweep of Stars. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's, I mean, music is. I mean, it, we could. But that's like a whole other episode, right there. Yeah, like, yeah, how yeah. does music make our fiction? So we probably better just put the pause button there. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So my pick of the week is wildly different from Patrick's and Maurice's in that it is extremely general. But you know what? I stand by it. I am a lapsed Catholic, raised extremely Catholic, and have not really practiced from beyond the point of of college and so on. But one of the things that I do follow is the Lenten practice of not eating meat on Fridays. Mm -hmm. And I do it mostly out of sheer piss and vinegar cussedness like sort of like you think i can't do this i'm gonna do it i'm gonna show you and like it's it's not a spiritual exercise for me so much as it is like a like me stepping up and so i take very seriously not messing up lenten fridays but the problem with that is you know if you're not as imaginative as you otherwise could be or as skilled as you otherwise could be as a cook your options tap out pretty quick so i have turned with increasing frequency towards indian food which gives a fantastic variety of options that will allow you to not violate whatever semi-arbitrary, perhaps slightly ill-guided vows that you may or may not have made. Hmm. All hail Paneer. <laughs> <laughs> so that is where I am at. So I, I, there's a, you just reminded me of something that happened to me. I, I went through a drive-thru and it took forever. And they, the thing that made me think of this was that they had you know, they suddenly had fish sandwiches on the menu, like lots okay. and lots of fish sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I'm sitting in this this uh, this drive-through, and it's taking forever. And I'm like, why is it taking forever? And I'm watching the cars in front of me, and I noticed that no one is paying. Like they're trying to pass their card to the person, and the person is refusing the card. And then there's a conversation, and then they just hand them their food, and the car pulls on. And, I, and it just didn't really register in my brain. And then I pull up and the guy said, the guy says, I'm really sorry for the wait. All of our credit card processing went down nationwide. We cannot oh take a card anymore. Do you happen to have cash? And in the millisecond that that happened, I'm thinking about all the cars in front of me who did not pay anything and got their food for free and went on. Mm-hmm. 
and he asked me this question and I'm like, yeah, I've got cash. And I hand him a $20 bill. And he's like, oh, you do? Oh, great. And, you know, he starts processing everything yeah. and he has me change. And I looked at him and I said, I should have said no and got my food for free like everybody in front of me. But I grew up Catholic and I can't do that. <laughs> and he laughed his ass off. And he's like, I get it. I totally get it. So anyway, mm-hmm. there's my there's my Catholic story for the for the podcast. Well done, Patrick. Single-handedly <laughs> keeping keeping the economic apparatus of fast food <laughs> up and running. All right. So there are a thousand more things I would love to talk to you about, Maurice, but we have to respect the time, respect your time. I'm going to put in a, a vote for someday, somehow, maybe there being another MoCon. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And in the meantime, where can people find you, find Sweep of Stars, find all your other cool stuff? Let's see, you can find Sweep of Stars, as of this week, uh, everywhere. It should be everywhere. In fact, I'm planning a trip to all of our Barnes & Nobles here in town so I can just start taking my picture with my books out in the wild because that's a tradition that we do Mm -hmm. that amuses my wife to no end as we like to (laughs) act like I don't know who this person is, but I want to uh, take my picture by their book, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So so there's that. And uh, let's see, then you can find uh, everything going on with me uh, over at, uh, well, all my social media is all Maurice Broadus. So uh, including my website, mauricebroadus.com. Uh, you can find uh, all my antics. All right. Thanks so much for being with us, Mo. Oh, you are so welcome. Spring will be springing. Wait, springing? Eh, I don't know. But anyway, it's happening soon, and that means it's time for a new bumper. First on the agenda, Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle over at Beyond the Trope should be scratching their ears and wondering who's been talking about them. It's me! I've been talking about them here and in other places like Capricorn 42. Why? Because they have a pretty nifty little podcast. They talk to authors and artists just like we do and release episodes on Tuesdays, just like we do. So if you subscribe to both our podcasts, it's like getting a double feature every week. In other news, I mentioned before Capricorn 42. That's because Tracy and I had a lot of fun there, especially spending time with several of our patrons. Becoming a patron doesn't just mean you get to hang out with us at conventions, although you might. It means also getting access to things like monthly hangouts, a patron's-only episode of the podcast every month, and even a private Facebook group where we talk about extra nerdy things. It's as close to the green room for the show as you can get without, you know, actually being in the green room. Check out patreon.com slash functionalnerds for more information about becoming a backer. What's next? Well, I'll probably have to record another bumper. But that's easily days away, or more, who knows. <laughs> time, time is so stupid. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right, how about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's probably a good enough signal. <laughs>